Can you hear me now? Testing, testing. Awesome. There we go. So Ezra chapter 10. Well, have you ever been in a situation in your life where your sinful decision has made a mess not just for your life, but for those that are around you? Maybe there's a time in school growing up when you decided to cheat off of a friend's test without them knowing and the teacher decides to not just punish you, but punish your friend. Or perhaps growing up with siblings, in order for you to not get punished by your parents, you made up a lie that your sin was actually done by one of your brothers. And as a result, your dad punishes the both of you for what took place. As you're probably thinking back on your own life, maybe your childhood, thinking of some examples in your life, can you think of an example where your sin actually didn't impact someone else? One of the devastating realities of sin is that it tends to not only make a mess in your life, but it tends to be like a bomb that goes off, sending shockwaves to those that are around you. In our study in Ezra last week, Ezra was informed that there was this sinful mess that had infiltrated the camp. Despite God's clear instruction to his people throughout the entire Old Covenant, that they were supposed to be a people that were wholly devoted to God. They were supposed to be a people completely separated to God. And by no means were they supposed to ever enter any, any type of relationship with these peoples of the lands. Ezra's informed that there are several within the camp that have just completely disregarded God's word. They've disobeyed God and they've done exactly the opposite of what he has commanded. They have forsaken God's instruction and not only have they intermarried with these peoples of the land, apparently they've also adopted their abominable and idolatrous practices. And so chapter 9 is Ezra's response to this sin. He tears his clothes, he openly weeps, and he fasts at the brokenness that he sees in this camp. And he recognizes that this sin, though not every single man in the camp is guilty of it, this sin threatens the very existence of the entire remnant of God's people. He prays this prayer. He prays this prayer of confession. And he starts to ask these questions to God at the very end of chapter 9. And he asks this question to God. God, how could we continue to sin despite your grace in our lives? And the chapter kind of ends on this cliffhanger. He asks God, will, will your anger not just rise up against us and wipe us out for this iniquity? Well, we didn't really get any answers last week. And we don't know if there's really a way forward with this group. Is, is forgiveness able to be found? Is God going to restore these people back into this covenant relationship? Well, we didn't get these answers in chapter 9, but we will today in chapter 10. So before we jump in, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for another morning that you've given us. Lord, just thank you for being able to sing and gather and sing praises to you. Lord, you are the God of the universe and your glory is known across the lands. 
Lord, and we are humbled here today because uh, despite our sin and rebellion against you, Lord, you have uh, set us apart for salvation for those of us that confess Christ. Lord, undeservedly so, we get to call you God. Lord, we get to be in line with the covenant through Christ. Lord, and that is why we gather here today, Lord. And so I pray today as we look at this text in Ezra chapter 10, Lord, would we be a people that are stirred up to righteousness, uh, towards repentance, Lord, towards obedience as we follow Christ. So we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we aren't necessarily given all the details of how long this sin has taken place in the camp. But the last verse of our chapter today tells us that some of these men had entered into these relationships with these women. And the result is that there was some offspring that came about from it. And so we can at least safely say that this sin had been taking place for a minimum of nine months. And yet there has been this complete lack of conviction from anyone within the camp. We know that this sin is not some type of secretive relationship. It's not some secretive affair that is done behind the scenes. But when these elders approach Ezra with this sin in the camp, they know who exactly is involved in this sin. They tell Ezra, it's the priests, it's the Levites, it's these leading chief men in our camp that are guilty of this sin. And so even though these relationships have been going on for at least nine months, and even though most everybody in the camp knew exactly who was at fault, there is a lack of response from God's people within the camp. But notice how God has faithfully used Ezra to stir up conviction in this camp. Notice this domino effect that we've seen since chapter 9 and what we're going to see here in chapter 10. Chapter 9, Ezra arrives and for four months he is teaching God's word. He is teaching the Bible. He is doing what Artaxerxes had commissioned him to do. And evidently, it's only after he had been teaching that this conviction stirs up some men for them to approach Ezra about the sin that's in the camp. And when Ezra is told this sin in chapter 9, he doesn't just brush it aside like it's no big deal. He doesn't try to sweep it under the carpet. He doesn't turn his face to look another way. No, he responds appropriately to the mess that's in the camp. And this appropriate response, this weeping, this humility, this fasting, this brokenness that Ezra feels obviously stirs up the conviction in the hearts of others. Last week we learned that there were a few that gathered around Ezra as he fasted. But notice what we see in chapter 10 verse 1 today. It says this, while Ezra prayed and confessed weeping and falling face down before the house of God, an extremely large assembly of Israelite men, women, and children gathered around him. These people also wept bitterly. There's no doubt 
that because of the faithfulness of this man, Ezra, because of his faithful response to God's commission to teach God's word, because of his response to the sin that's in this camp, God has used him to stir up hardened hearts to sin, to be grieved and broken to what they see in front of him. Church, do you want to be used by God? Do you want to have a life that makes an impact on this earth? We, we learned a few weeks ago that this man, Ezra, was one who dedicated his entire life to knowing God's word, to doing God's word, and to teaching God's word. And notice what has happened as Ezra has faithfully done those things. God has transformed this camp. So for us in this room, if we want to make an impact, if we want to be useful to God, let us be a people that are de dedicated to God's word and let his word inform our thinking. Let God's word be the thing that dictates what is right and what is wrong in our lives. Like Ezra, let us be people that respond and grieve sin appropriately when it comes across our path. Instead of trying to be popular and instead of trying to just fit in, let us love God and love people enough to earnestly point out sin, graciously point out sin, and grieve sin when we see it. And like Ezra here, let us seek God's face in times of trouble. Notice what happens, verse 2. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, an Elamite, responded to Ezra. Apparently he's one of the men that had been gathered around weeping the sin. And notice what he says. He says, we have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the surrounding peoples. But there is still hope for Israel in spite of him. So uh, this guy, Shechaniah, is gathered around Ezra. He's one of these men that are weeping. He sees the sin that is in the camp. And because of Ezra's faithful response, he is stirred up in conviction and he confesses the sin that is in the camp. But we're going to find out that he is kind of pulling a, a page out of Ezra's book because at the end of the chapter, there is a list of 110 men that are actually guilty of this sin. And guess what? Shechaniah is not one of these men. But what he sees is that this sin has impacted his family. Even though he's not one of these men, there are six men in his family, including his father, that have egregiously sinned before God. And so this weight and this repercussion of sin, without a doubt, hits heavily in his home. And he knows firsthand, with, without a doubt, that God's people have been unfaithful. And as a result, they stand guilty and condemned before God. He doesn't make any excuses. Notice here. Simply put, he just says, we have been unfaithful to our God. But notice what Shechaniah says that Ezra doesn't say. Last chapter, Ezra just talked about the sin that was in the camp. He talked about their desperate state. He talked about that none of them could stand in front of God because of the guilt that was above their head. But notice what, what Shechaniah says. 
He says, in spite of this sin, in spite of the fact that they have pursued what God had told them not to do, there is still hope. There's hope not because they can fix their mess. There's hope not because he's got this evidence that he can bring to to show that the people are guiltless. No, there's hope because God is the God of hope. And Shechaniah knows the character and nature of this God that he is dealing with. There is hope because Yahweh is a God that has declared himself to be one who is gracious, who is peaceful, who is merciful, who is abounding in love and steadfast in righteousness. Shechaniah knows texts like Exodus 34 that declares that God is not just steadfast and not just merciful, not just abounding and gracious from generation to generation, but he is also a God who is able to forgive iniquities and rebellions of sin. Shechaniah knows passages like Leviticus chapter 26 that even when God's covenant people have pursued sin headstrong and they've just dove into it, there's a passage that stands out like this, that says this, even when my people sin, when they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their ancestors and their unfaithfulness that they practiced against me and how they acted in hostility towards me, And when their uncircumcised are humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, notice what he says here. Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. Is there sin in the camp? Yes, without a doubt. Do they stand condemned before God? Yes, without a doubt. Do they have any righteous pleas on their own before God to get rid of this sin? No, not with any hope. But what these two passages teach and what Shechaniah is grasping onto is that the God that they are dealing with is a God who is merciful and abounding in love. And even when God's people sin is one who is willing and gracious to forgive sins. There's hope if God's people will turn in faith. There's hope. If God's people will turn from their wickedness and confess their sins before God. And notice that's exactly what Shechaniah is going to propose that this entire camp does. Look, read verse 3 with me. Therefore, therefore, because of God's grace and because of God's hope and because of God's covenant, therefore, let's make a covenant before our God to send away all the foreign wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord. And those who tremble at the command of our God, let it be done according to the law. Get up, for this matter is your responsibility, and we support you. Be strong and take action. As we look at those verses, I think one thing should stand out, and it is this desire on Shechaniah's part, and this desire on those that are there gathered in front of Ezra to make sure that they go forward by abiding by God's law. Notice, this this proposal, it's first influenced by the instruction or the counsel of my Lord. This Lord that is referred to is not the Lord God that you and I might think, but this is actually the Lord Ezra. This is Shechaniah's teacher. This is Shechaniah's master. This is Shechaniah's Lord. And what has 
Ezra done? What has he done as this Lord? He has been teaching God's word faithfully. And so as he's making this proposal to make amends for this sin, what is he doing? He's saying, let us go by your instruction from God's word. Notice again, it pops up. Let this not just be your instruction, but the instruction of those who tremble at God's word. There's a reverence, there is a fear, there is a respect for God's word, and there is a desire that they must move forward according to the scriptures. Notice again, you see it later on, it says this, let us do everything according to the law of God. In other words, they've sinned against the God of the universe. How? By breaking God's law. They've disobeyed God's commandments. And Shekinah's proposal is the only way forward. The only way we can move forward in this covenant relationship is to be a people that submits to the authority of God's word. We've sinned against God. Let us go to God according to his scriptures. And what's his proposal? How have they sinned? Well, they've done exactly what God commanded them not to do. They intermarried with the people that they were not supposed to marry with. They started practicing the abominable, idolatrous practices from these peoples of the land. And so what is the solution? The way forward to amend of this mess is to do what they should have done in the beginning. To separate themselves completely from these women. We don't know exactly what it means to send away that we see here. At the very least, it means that these illicit marriages must be dissolved. So here this group is influenced by a desire and a commitment to God's word. And what is the proposal on how they can move forward in this covenant relationship with God is to make full confession of sin and to make a clean break from it. Churches this what repentance looks like in our lives? Do we share in this same commitment to put our relationship with God first above all else? Here this group shows this commitment to be dedicated and under the authority of God's instruction. When the Spirit brings conviction in areas in our life, do we share this same humility to not abide by what the world says, to not try to brush away sin or try to put it under the rug, to not just kind of turn our way and say, oh, you know, that doesn't apply to me? Or do we share in this humility to confess our sin unashamedly before God? Notice here, there's no attempt to downplay what they do. They don't make any attempt to say why they've fallen into this sin. Unashamedly, they look at God and they say, we have sinned before you. That might be easy to do with God, but what about when we confess sin to one another? Now, you might show tension in a marriage and you might react in a negative way to a spouse and you might confess that wrongdoing, but you follow up with, but if only you didn't do that. I've, I've just been so stressed at work, and if it wasn't for my stress, I wouldn't react the way that I'm reacting. 
Notice this group makes no excuse for sin. We should be a people that follow their example, unashamedly confessing their sin without reservation, without making excuses. This assembled group stands behind Shechaniah's proposal. And since Ezra is the one who has been given authority by Artaxerxes to enact justice in this land, Shechaniah causes him to rise up with forward, going forward with confidence that this entire assembly fully supports him. Let's keep reading. Verse 5. Then Ezra got up, made the leading priests, the Levites, and all Israel take an oath to do what had been said. So they took the oath. Ezra went from the house of God and walked to the chamber of Jehohanan, son of Eliashib, where he spent the night. He did not eat food or drink water because he was mourning over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. So verse 5, Ezra kind of strikes the iron while it's hot, doesn't he? This group proposes this plan to move forward. And moving forward with this plan, he decides to make this group take up a vow before God. As sorrowful and as well-intentioned as this group has been, Ezra doesn't want to take any chances because he knows that oftentimes those with good intentions fail to materialize into faithful action. And so what does he do? He calls all of Israel to make an oath before God to do what they have just confessed that they were going to do. To make a covenant to live by before God. But notice... As he does this and as the people step forward and as they make this oath, Ezra doesn't stop there. Read verse 6. It says this, Ezra then went from the house of God and walked to the chamber of Jehonahanan, son of Eliashib, where he spent the night. He did not eat food or drink water because he was mourning over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. So we don't really know who this guy Jehohanan is. But he's probably some temple servant. And he's probably got some chamber that is connected somewhere close to this temple. And as he moves forward and as these people are all saying the right things and it seems like they're doing the right things, Ezra knows how fickle the human heart is. Ezra knows that sometimes that those that have conviction within a moment, it seems to pass. And so what does he do? He goes forward and he continues to beseech God. He continues to fast. He continues to pray. He continues to ask the Lord to stir up conviction and faithfulness in the camp. This situation hasn't been resolved yet. They've said all the right things. And they've talked about doing all the right things. But Ezra knows how fickle sin is in the camp. And maybe last chapter you looked at Ezra's prayer and you thought, man, this guy's a little bit over the top and this guy's a little bit showy. We can see Ezra's genuine heart because when he is alone, he is on his knees, humbly broken for the sins of his people. What a leader. What a faithful man of God. What a man who loves God and loves his people earnestly. Fathers, I look at you in this room and I ask of you, would you take this same commitment for your families? 
For those that are broken in your families, broken by sin, headstrong walking in it, would you show this same determination to go humbly before the Lord when no one else is around and confess these things before God? Ezra knows how fickle the human heart is. And he knows that the only one that can stir up conviction is God. And so what does he do? He goes earnestly before this God so that he will move. Verse 7, let's keep reading. We don't know how much time has passed from this time of prayer. Perhaps it's the very next day. But they, speaking of this group behind Shechaniah, circulated a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem that all the exiles should gather at Jerusalem. Whoever did not come within three days would forfeit all his possessions according to the decisions of the leaders and elders and would be excluded from the assembly of the exiles. In these verses, we see that this group is committed to following through. You know, how, how often we have good intentions. <laughs> right? I think a few months ago, I talked about how we moved into our house and we had the best of intentions to paint the entire house. Well, guess what? Our house is still left unpainted. So as this group makes this plan, and as they are going forward... As they have responded appropriately, they set a time frame for God's people to gather in front of God, in front of the temple. Those that might consider blowing off the assembly for whatever reason. Perhaps maybe they're still hardened by their own sin. Perhaps they are still desirous to continue to walk in those relationships that have been declared illicit. These groups maybe have this idea that perhaps the threat of losing property and being excommunicated would shake them from their stupor. Or perhaps there's some in the camp that we so often see that this particular sin doesn't really affect them. I didn't mess up, so why should I be the one that's summoned to come before God in Jerusalem? Notice here that they too will be excommunicated. And their property, too, will be stripped for failure to see the severity of this matter. The message is clear. If you're guilty of sin, you must gather and you must make amends for this sin. If you don't gather and you refuse to repent of your ways, you will be stripped of this land given to you by God. By no means will we allow this land to fall into the hands of those who are illicit offspring of these idolatrous relationships. This generation will have none of it. And you can tell this is, moment is kind of building to this climax, isn't it? So far, the group that was gathered around Ezra has responded faithfully. They've said the right things. They've done the right things. They've made this commitment. But what about the rest of Israel? What about those who are kind of scattered in Judah and the towns that are surrounding Jerusalem? What about those who are actually guilty of the sin of intermarriage? We've seen two confessions of sin, and guess what? They've been confessions of men who have not sinned in this way against God. So as this moment is drawing to a climax, will these people show up, and will they have penitent hearts? Well, let's read verse 9 to see what happens. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered in Jerusalem within the three days. On the 20th day of the ninth month, and the people sat in the square at the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because 
of the heavy rain. Right? This is like a scene out of a movie, isn't it? God's people have been called into action. This gauntlet has been dropped. The sin has been proclaimed. And God's people are called to make a response. And as these people, all of the men, notice, are gathered before God, before the temple, notice what's taking place. There's this perfect rain that is falling down. These are the cold winter months of this time period. And so they are trembling before God. But this perfect movie scene shows that the, the weather also represents the mood and the atmosphere of the situation. And as this moment kind of arises to this climactic peak... Out of the crowd, there's this voice from Ezra. This has to be this loud, booming voice. And Ezra says this, You have been unfaithful by marrying foreign women and adding to Israel's guilt. He looks at God's people. He doesn't brush away the sin. He doesn't turn his face and his prayer from last chapter that identified himself with God's people saying, we are guilty before our God. We are guilty for our sins and we have fallen short before God have now turned to this accusatory note of you. He looks at his people and he says, you are guilty before the most high God. You have been unfaithful. You have married. You have added to the guilt of all those around us. This isn't mean-spirited. This isn't something that is evil or wicked on Ezra's part. It's not something that is prideful. It is the most loving thing that Ezra can do at this moment. They've sinned against the one and the only almighty God. And to be a sinner in the hands of a God of justice is not a place anyone should want to be in. And so the most loving thing Ezra can do is to look at his people and to declare their sin before them. But notice he doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just say, you have sinned. Good luck. I'd hate to be you. Notice. Notice what he says. Verse 11. Therefore, make a confession to the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the surrounding peoples and your foreign wives. He doesn't just leave them in a state of hopelessness. He calls them to repent of their sins. He clearly states how they have sinned. He points them to a right resolution before God, and he calls them to confess their sins before this holy God. Confess, repent, follow in obedience. Why? Because this God who we are dealing with is the one who even the most guiltiest of sinners has forgiveness. Churches, we are living in this world and as we're walking in this world and as we are confronting, graciously I should say, graciously confronting the sins of those that are around us, telling them of the bad news that they are guilty before God. Let us remember to follow that up like Ezra does here. To always follow up that bad news of sin and guilt before a holy God with the good news that there is forgiveness found before this holy God through his son Jesus. 
Forgiveness is offered to all peoples, of all places, of all times, regardless of their sin. There's not a single sin that is beyond God's reach where he does not have the power to forgive. And so he calls out their sin. He calls them to repentance. He calls them to confession. And notice what happens. Verse 12. Then all the assembly responded loudly. Yes, we will do as you say. But there are many people. And it is the rainy season. We don't have the stamina to stay out in the open. This isn't something that can be done in a day or two. For we have rebelled terribly in this matter. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, this might shock you, especially if you've ever read through the prophets. How many times do God's people, faithful men, approach God's people with the sin that they are in, only to be rejected and persecuted and reviled and hated? But here in this situation, as God has stirred up conviction, as God is moving this people to confess sins, they all respond with a loud voice confessing unanimously the sin that is in their camp. And we might look at this proposal as something of maybe pumping the brakes, but that's not at all what's taking place here. This seems to be some legitimate reasons why they can't move forward as of right now with how they should repent and confess their sins. It's a pretty straightforward thing that they're saying, isn't it? There's a lot of people here, probably 60,000 plus gathered around the temple. And it is the cold, rainy season. And a lot of us have gathered from surrounding towns and we don't have proper shelter to move forward. And guess what? We have rebelled tremendously before God. And so making amends of all this mess is not something that we should take lightly. And it's not something that we can do in a matter of seconds. And so they propose a plan moving forward. Verse 14. Let our leaders represent the entire assembly. Then let all those in our towns who have married foreign women come at appointed times together with the elders and judges of each town. In order to avert the fierce anger of our God. Concerning this matter, only Jonathan, son of Asahel, and Jeziah, son of Tikva, opposed this, with Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levite, supporting them. So they don't just pump the brakes. They want to move forward on this plan. And so what do they do? They propose this pretty straightforward plan. Let's let officials, let's elect leaders to represent us. And since not all of us have sinned before God in this way, let's set up appointed times where God's people who have sinned come so that they can make amends for their sins. And let them come with judges so that justice can take place. And notice that the heart of the matter is that they really do want to appease God's wrath against their sin. Verse 14. There's only a few people that oppose this, and their opposition isn't really told to us. The entire assembly seems to agree except these four men. Most conservative scholars actually argue that these men, rather than opposing what they have said because they think it's too strict, they actually think that these men want some type of harsher sentence to be drawn out. But despite the opposition of these four men, as the saying goes, the majority rules moving forward. Let's keep reading verse 16. Then the exiles did what had been proposed. The priest Ezra selected men who were family heads, 
all identified by name to represent their ancestral families. They convened on the first day of the 10th month to investigate the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they had dealt with all the men who had married foreign women. They take their time. They look at the matter and they say, we've sinned grievously before God. And rather than trying to make amends in a matter of days or two, it takes them three months to work through all these cases. With all these men helping out, these family heads helping out, these judges that are appointed, they all sit and they gather and they work through the cases informed by God's word, informed by scripture, informed by prayer. And after three months, they work through all the cases. And if you look at verses 18 through 44, these are all the men that have sinned within the camp. The priests are mentioned first in verses 18 through 22. And if you don't want to count, I'll give you the numbers. There are 27 different priests who have sinned in this matter. The citation of the sons of Immer, of Harim, and Pashur suggests that every single priestly family in the camp is guilty of this sin. There's not a single priestly line that has gone unstained by this sin of intermarriage within the camp. The Levites and the other temple workers are mentioned next in verses 23 through 24. And ten men are listed in these groups. Groups that were supposed to be consecrated and dedicated, who had special laws given to them by God at who they were supposed to marry. Those that were supposed to know the Torah Inside and out, who were supposed to know all of God's rules and statutes, these men are found guilty as well. And the list concludes in verses 25 through 43 with all the other people listed. And if you look at those names and if you compare them to those that uh, came back from uh, the exile in chapter 2 or in chapter 8, you'll notice that there are 11 different family heads that are found guilty of this sin. In other words, out of the 110 men, 44 men were either supposed to be dedicated to those in temple service or they were supposed to be the heads of their family. Men that knew the law. Men that should have known better. Men who weren't ignorant to God's statutes, but in their fleshly desires, decided to pursue those things rather than to honor God. And this episode ends with quite a sad note in verse 44. Those that they had entered into relationships with, these illicit marriages of idolatry, some of these women even conceived and gave birth. And so the implication is that not only were these men supposed to put away their wives, these idolatrous wives of the people of the land, these sons and daughters that were born in these relationships, these men who had sinned against God were supposed to put away these children as well. I would assume that foreign women who were willing to identify with Israel and worship Yahweh could remain. There's a precedent that we see throughout Scripture with this. 
Men, women like Ruth and Rahab and Zipporah who were non-Israelites who did away with their gods and confessed Yahweh as Lord were welcomed and they were allowed to be a part of Israel. And we see a hope of this back in chapter 6 verse 21 where non-Israelites who separated themselves from the people of the land were able to accept to join in Passover with Israelites. But the reality of the situation is we don't know for certain because this text doesn't say anything specific about it. Instead, it just comes to an abrupt end. And if you started with us back in chapter 1 with this excitement of God's people being restored to this land, using this Persian king Cyrus and this hope building up to this renewed people under God's renewed covenant, under the temple, in the land, and you thought that this was going to some place of great climax, what happens is it falls short, doesn't it? Ezra 10 kind of leaves you with this mixed bag of emotions. And I think if you kind of feel uncomfortable on what's happened here, I think that's exactly the way God would have us feel. In one sense, it's incredible. We see God's people respond in almost a unanimous repentance, which is super uncommon in Scripture. What we see are these men who are guilty of sin repent of their ways, and they literally forsake all things by putting God first. But in another sense, you can't help but feel the weight and the damaging of effects of sin gained. We read these lists and we see the end of the verse there in verse 44. And it's easy to forget that these are actually real families that we're reading about. These aren't just a list of names of people that didn't exist. But these are real families that are now broken by sin. Real sons and daughters that are now separated from their fathers because of sin. As we think about these 110 men who are found guilty of intermarriage, I don't know about you guys, but the question I ask myself is what happened to their previous wives? Maybe some of them were unmarried. Maybe some of them were actually widowers. But it's really hard to imagine that all 110 of them would be in those states. We get a hint in the book of Malachi that was kind of written around this same time where God's people divorced their Israelite wives for the fact that they wanted to go and marry these foreign women. Is that what happened here in this book? And what we see here is that though divorce is permissible in the scriptures, it's not ever what God really desires for his people. And anyone that's ever been through a divorce knows that better than the rest of us. Had God's people only obeyed in the first place and separated themselves from the peoples of the land, they wouldn't be in this mess of a situation that they created for themselves. And although the solution to divorcing this, these pagan women and to send away these illicit children seems like the best way forward in this covenant renewal process, 
If you read this and if you're uncomfortable, I think you should be uncomfortable because it is a no-win situation. Divorce just seems to be the lesser of two evils here, doesn't it? And as we contemplate that, we should understand that that's exactly what sin does in our lives, church. Not only does it drive a wedge between us and God, this chapter is a reminder that sin always has an impact on those that we love that are closest to us. Sin often places us in a lot of no-win and messy situations. And though our chief motivation for obedience and our chief desire should be for the glory and honor of God, prayerfully, this mess of Ezra chapter 10 will also motivate us in this church all the more to put away those fleshly desires. To put away those things that lead nowhere but death. And though this chapter ends on quite a sad note, Showing the devastating impacts of Israel's sin. Hopefully we can all see this light of God's grace that is shining through it all. Let's remember Shechaniah's words at the beginning of the chapter. Is Israel sinful? Yes. Are they all guilty before God? Yes. Can they stand at all before this God in their own righteousness? No. But what does Shechaniah say? In spite of this, there is hope. He looks around at this mess and he knows what's going on. Remember, he feels it probably more than most because of six men in his own camp have sinned before God. But he knows this God of the covenants. And he knows that this God is one who is gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love from generation to generation to generation. Shechaniah has no clue of the depths of that love, does he? He's seen it in Israel's past. And he can look back on those examples of how God has faithfully demonstrated his love. But he has no clue what God is going to do in his son. He has no clue of the hope that is going to be granted to you and I. Sinners that can't stand before God. Guilty of sin and shame in the most depraved way. And though that is our state apart from Christ, God, when the right time came, sent his son. Romans 5 tells us it was in spite of our weakness that God sent his son. And it was in spite of the fact that we were enemies with God that he sent his son. And it was in our weakness that Christ came. Providing hope for sinners like you and me. Maybe you're here today and you confess the name of Christ, but there is just sin that you are harboring onto. You started to pursue it. 
has become like this addictive nature and you're looking around and you see there is absolutely no hope. You've tried and you've tried and you've tried to make amends and you can't because you are so entangled in this depraved mess of sin. I pray that you would find the hope that Shechaniah shows these people here in Ezra 10 that if you will but just turn from sin, And if you will just confess in faith to this God, there is hope for reconciliation between you and this holy God. Maybe you're here today and this world that is broken by sin is just beating the tar out of you. Just struggling. There's pain and there's suffering and you don't know how much longer you can hold on to. There is hope for you too. Romans 8 tells us that this God who did not spare his son but graciously gave his son up for you and I, how will he not also graciously give us all things pertaining to life and salvation? What an incredible God we serve. We're a mess of a people. Ezra chapter 10, they are a mess of a people. But this God that we serve, there always is hope with him. So let us stand today. Let us pray. Let us move forward rejoicing in the God of this hope. Let us move forward in faith and obedience, making a clean break from sin and confessing in this faith of this holy God. Let's stand and pray together, church. Father, we are a people that desperately need you. Lord, for those of us that have confessed the name of Christ, that reality rings true every single day. Lord, though we love you and though we desire to honor you, Lord, we fall short every single day. God, and so we stand here. Just again, confessing our sins before you. Acknowledging that apart from Christ, we are a people that are unclean. Lord, but despite that, despite our enmity with you, despite our weakness and sin, there is hope as Shechaniah proclaimed. Lord, you are a God that is good and is gracious. Lord, you are a God that is faithful to generation upon generation. You're a God that saves sinners and loves to do so. Lord, and so in the depths of our depravity and in the state of our hearts that are prone to wander in sin, God, I pray that you would stir us up to righteousness. I pray that you would stir up faithful obedience in our midst. God, and like these people, Lord, that we would be a people that are completely dedicated to holiness. Lord, seeking your face above all else and making a clean break from sin. God, guide us in your word. Let your word be the thing that is authoritative in our lives and let us humbly submit before it day in and day out. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy and thank you for your son. We ask these things in his precious name. Amen.